Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. So this is episode 24 with Elizabeth Cannon, uh, former president of the University of Calgary. And uh, again, thank you for taking the time to meet with us this afternoon. Uh, and this is uh, May 4th. So uh, may the force be with you, as they say, or the may the fourth be, what is it? May the fourth be with you. Is that what it is, Chris, uh, Eric? You didn't say anything about the Millennium Falcon t-shirt that I specifically wore today, but that's okay. I'm going to let it go. Well, I've seen it before. So. That's true. It's not a surprise. Uh, so again, I think maybe we'll start off, Elizabeth, uh, just for our audience to, if you could just start off by giving a little bit about your background, because you are quite accomplished in the field of geomatics and I have, uh, you know, long served here at the University of Calgary, but if you could just maybe walk us through a little bit about your educational background and work experience. Great. Well, thanks very much, Chris and Eric. It's great to be with you today. And uh, you're right. I spent uh, a lot of my career at the University of Calgary, a little stint in industry before coming back to do my graduate work, never thinking I was actually going to be a professor. Uh, an opportunity came up and I said, well, I'll try out, try this out and, and, and never left. So uh, early in my career was very involved in teaching and research, uh, had just an absolute pleasure uh, to be working in a field that is ubiquitous now, GPS technology, but back in the day, of course, um, you know, wasn't so well known and it was used for pretty specialized opportunities. So now it is in practically every device we have. So being able to ride that wave was a lot of fun. Uh, and then I moved uh, into, uh, I did a stint as a chair for women in science and engineering. So very much around encouraging women uh, in STEM. And then got into the more administrative track in the university, uh, head of my department, Dean of our Schulich School of Engineering, and then ultimately president of the University of Calgary. So. That was a great ride, uh, seeing a young institution sort of evolve uh, past its 50th anniversary. Finished that a few years ago, and uh, since then, uh, authored and co-authored a few books, very much involved in the innovation ecosystem, angel investing, and sitting on some boards. So uh, it's it's been a fun ride. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, maybe we'll start off with our first question that we had for you, um, especially with the pandemic now. Uh, what do you think that the universities will look like in 10 years? Um, where, do you think it'll be blended, hybrid, uh, completely online? Uh, is that going to be the new kind of normal? Well, let's first step back and, and talk about what universities are for. And of course, uh, you know, most students look at a university or maybe their parents look at a university as uh, a way to gain a credential. Uh, it is obviously involves a number of years of study or a period of study time uh, in an area, hopefully that you're passionate about If At the end of the day, you get a credential that is endorsed by the institution. Um, but universities are much more than that. I think certainly as an administrator, as, as a, a teacher, as a researcher, 
it is a community. It is a place where you develop uh, your own uh, network, so to speak. You learn, you grow, um, you are really exposed to new ideas, new thoughts, perhaps people that you would never have otherwise come into contact with. So there's not only intellectual growth and academic uh, immersion, uh, there's personal growth in a university. And we talk about the student experience, actually uh, exposing our students to not only what goes on inside the classroom, but what goes on outside the classroom. Now, if we look at what has happened under pandemic, it certainly has shaken institutions. Um, prior to COVID, about 2% of classes were online. So the idea of augmenting or even perhaps replacing a more traditional university education with an online education, you could do it. There were some institutions that that was their focus, but it wasn't that common. Um, universities were seen as places where you, you had that full immersion uh, in the classroom uh, and, and that was kind of accepted uh, for, for the most part. What COVID did is in a few short weeks, is it uh, moved from 2% online to virtually 100% online. And, you know, it really, I think the upside is, is accelerated the pathway to alternative teaching and learning um, opportunities uh, for students. And, you know, quite frankly, it forced perhaps some faculty who thought, you know, I'm going to ride out this technology. I think I'll be able to retire before I'm really having to kind of fully engage and immerse in online. Uh, you didn't have the option. So I think the upside is that um, universities have now invested. Uh, faculty have experienced, for better or worse, students uh, see the upside and perhaps some of the downside of online learning. But we're in a very different place. So to answer your question, Chris, if we project forward, to me, it's going to be how institutions continue to deliver that student experience, which is a a personal immersion and in, in universities over the last year, you know, they've struggled with that. I think they've been creative in a number of ways of how do we engage students, you know, in this online environment over and above just the classes they're taking. How do we create that community and that learning and personal growth? But that's going to still be important. Um, but then how do we leverage this investment and knowledge and, and really optionality that we have developed through online courses to provide flexibility for student learning. So I don't think the more traditional university experience is going away. In fact, some studies have shown that students are craving to come back onto campus. They're craving for that face-to-face -face contact with their student peers, with their professors, with their communities but take the best of what has happened over the last year and provide opportunities for students to, you know, complement and augment a more traditional learning path to be able to intersperse or integrate online learning. So this is going to be fascinating to see how this evolves um, and that we make really the best use and the best learnings from the last year to help our students going forward. But 
I don't think we're going to have a wholesale change to all online learning. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I think your the word that you used uh, kind of uh, strikes me as augment. Um, I mean, I've talked to a lot of my colleagues about this, uh, where we can maybe repurpose some of the, the content that we've developed over this uh, last year and uh, look at new ways of actually deploying it in the classroom. And so uh, maybe having a bit of a hybrid or other kind of venues. Well, and I think you will see potentially some full you know, online credentials uh, and, you know, we can talk about micro credentials, certificates and so on. But I think we're going to see, again, packaging of some of that material that has been developed over the last year into other types of credentials that can be offered. So our, our next question is really about the idea of some of the a competition to online learning that's coming in. So on this podcast, Chris and I have talked a little bit about, for example, some of the offerings from Google. Uh, Google started offering online certificates, so not degree equivalent, but certificates that they're counting in their uh, own hiring practices as degree equivalent. So things like IT support, data analytics, project management, UX design, Android, things that are well suited for learning online. And we suspect that other of the the other, the big tech firms will almost certainly follow at some point. So our question is, is that, and this is a bit of a two-part, Elizabeth, it's like, first is how will universities, if that unfolds uh, with more competition compete, because those come in at a much lower price point, but also is that um, one of the reasons for the push for micro-credentials, or is that one of the, the motivations uh, for universities to offer a path other than just the four-year? Well, first, let's talk about what companies like Google are doing. And, and you're right, uh, Eric, that, you know, they're providing these low to no cost learning opportunities to, you know, get up the learning curve very quickly on, you know, whether it's data analytics or IT support or what have you. You know, why are, com why are companies like Google doing it? I mean, you know, to their credit, they're doing it in a very self-serving way. I mean, it's if, if uh, you know, people take those courses, they will be better prepared to work at Google and hit the ground running on day one. So, you know, from a business perspective, uh, it makes sense to uh, put it out there and, uh, you know, have that as one of the hurdles, perhaps, or one of the, the filters through which they do their future hiring. Very different uh, than a university experience, which is not just about checking the box on skills. Uh, it's uh, developing critical thinking, uh, judgment, um, again, broadening your horizons and exposures around, um, uh, you know, topics that you perhaps otherwise wouldn't see. Um, and, and so I think the university experience is very different. The role of, a, of a, a degree is quite different than something that you would get through uh, a Google course. Now, um, obviously, there's there's sort of two ends of the spectrum there. And I can tell you, you know, whether I when I was dean of engineering or even president of the university, when I was out in the community talking to employers, very rarely did they say, you know, if, if your students only had, you know, one more course in IT support, boy, we'd be hiring them. Normally, what they would be telling me is, look, your students are very well prepared technically, um, but 
you know, what we're really looking for is the ability to work in teams or to be able to make sure that they have strong communication skills or, you know, their leadership skills or their intercultural skills, you name it. It's, it's not so much the technical skills that tended to be the barrier for students. Now, having said that, um, the concept of micro-credentials is really around breaking up that, again, traditional four-year degree into smaller, let's say, bite-sized pieces. Um, you know, again, the university experience is great for, you know, somebody who's 18, has graduated from high school, wants to commit four or five years of their life, going to university full-time, looking to start their career thereafter. You know, that that that's kind of where a university degree was more typically designed to support. Um, that's not all learners of today. Uh, we have to, as institutions, be more uh, inclusive, be more flexible. So micro-credentials, uh, in a way, is uh, responding to that environment by saying not everybody wants a four-year degree in one go. So looking at shorter term certificates, um, diplomas that you can add together to ultimately get a degree if you so wish um, and doing it in ways that are better tuned to learners that may be working part time, full time. So, you know, again, it's not your Monday to Friday, you know, nine to four classes. It's offering them perhaps at alternative times in alternative formats in alternative configurations that give uh, learners what they need when they need it. So uh, again, it may be somebody who's mid-career who's looking for a little bit of a pivot. Uh, it may be somebody who has a degree perhaps in something in the arts and they want to augment it with something in a, in a technical area. Having those micro-credentials that allow you to layer on um, existing education or post-secondary education provides the, the flexibility and the ability uh, for learners to adapt to evolving career opportunities throughout their lifetime. So I think it's a good move. Um, I don't see yet uh, sort of direct competition between a Google and, and a traditional uh, university experience. But it certainly is being noticed and uh, it is, I would say, a small t threat that, that you have to look at what alternatives there are out there. I think the other piece of this is, you know, for Google, who's in that space, they know exactly what they want um, and, and they can offer some, you know, credentialing uh, that they would recognize. Is it going to be recognized sort of in, industry wide, not just in the IT industry, but but society-wise, uh, as you know, uh, you know, many companies, they look to not only the credential, they look at the reputation of the institution, they're looking at other things, and they're looking at other things on students' resumes be beyond just that credential. You know, what were your volunteer ac uh, activities? What were your leadership activities? So, you know, I, I still encourage students that you need to be well-rounded, you need to develop um, knowledge beyond sort of check the box skills to really have a solid footing for, um, for your career. 
complemented by an ongoing commitment to lifelong learning. You mean if I ask a quick follow-up based on something you said, which was I found really interesting, which is that you said, especially if someone wants to retool, so maybe they have an arts background, they want to add a, a micro-credential that has a more technical piece. Because I agree, these online programs offered from the private sector are hyper-specialized. And it's interesting what you said, because when I, well, I won't date myself, but when I went to UBC, um, higher education, at least from my perspective, was very much uh, almost increasingly specialization, where I've seen, I did a very non-specialized interdisciplinary, and I've almost seen that walked back over the years because of uh, things like the Art Royal Bank of Canada skills report, which look for exactly what you said, which is communication, teamwork, even over excess technical. Do you think that, um, is my observation uh, correct, or perhaps it's incomplete that universities are kind of that part of that specialization is uh, you're going to see more degrees that are perhaps more interdisciplinary or more choice between being able to pull in uh, perhaps previously considered unrelated fields into maybe a more general degree? Well, I'm not sure you'll see, you will see, uh, and there are existing programs that offer general degrees. Um, you know, what I have seen more of a, a trend is, um, you know, a degree plus or more of an and. Um, so, you know, again, I come from an engineering background and, and as I mentioned before, it was always the push to, you know, students, you know, they went into engineering because they enjoyed the technical, but you were always trying to push and layer on things outside of the technical disciplines because you knew those were important to really leverage the technical skill. On the other side of the equation, you know, you like to see students who are in arts have exposure to technology and science because that's part of just having digital literacy. It's absolutely critical. So um, what I think micro-credentials do, and you know, they go under different names at the University of Calgary, there are a number of certificate programs. It allows for the and. So if you're doing an arts degree, you can layer on um, you know, a certificate in entrepreneurial thinking, or perhaps something in data analytics. Um, or even if you're doing engineering, you can do a double degree with music. You know, I always find those students who have passions, because sometimes you're right, if you go to university and you pick a degree, um, you're focusing in an area and you're kind of shutting out other aspects of your of your life or or your passions that that you know you really care about. So it's the students who often did, you know, a double degree or added on a certificate in sustainability to their science degree or what have you. They're always they're, they're interesting students with an interesting background and one that they've created for themselves that differentiates them in the marketplace when they graduate. So I'm all for um, layering on uh, other knowledge and skills on top of a core degree. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good point that you make too, Elizabeth. I, I think uh, even at the Schulich School of Engineering, like a couple of years ago, uh, I thought that they did a fantastic job of uh, actually being responsive to the industry and creating that master of management or not master of um, a software engineering degree, uh, which was a one year intensive for people who already have uh, 
an engineering background uh, so that they can retool. And uh, I mean, I'd much rather probably have a, a one-year master's from the U of C versus maybe some of these kind of private um, institutions that uh, have like maybe a boot camp type of uh, uh, deal. Well, and I think most employers would recognize that much uh, much faster uh, than, they, than they would uh, the Google example. And the Google example, it has its place, um, but it is not equivalent. Um, so you're seeing, you know, the, the program in Shulik you talked about in science, they have data analytics where you can go and get a, a certificate in data analytics uh, having any kind of first degree. So that's great too. Or you see somebody who has a degree who goes to uh, get a technical diploma at a, a post-secondary institution such as SAIT here in Calgary, um, you know, layering on some other skill sets. So really it's about layering and it's about mobility across the system as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, even for myself, I, I think, uh, I mean, we've met the uh, few years back, but uh, I actually graduated with my undergrads from the UFC and I uh, actually did a joint degree. So this was over 20 years ago. And so my uh, one undergrad is in political science and then the other one is in business. I may actually even be one of the only ones that has ever done that combo as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting that you note that even in terms of, uh, you know, whether you look at that RBC report or there's the World Economic Forum. But I, I think really the universities, those soft skills, whether it's like critical thinking, creativity, communications, leadership. I mean, that's what uh, is the competitive advantage that you're getting from uh, the university experience. Absolutely. And um you know, that's why, uh, you know, the University of Calgary, like many others, have developed things like the co-curricular um, program where, you know, if you're doing volunteering, if you're doing leadership, you actually get it documented and endorsed by the university. So when you're out looking for a job, it's, it's not just your transcript with your academic credential, it's your co-curricular record, which speaks to you as a person and how you've been engaged in your university community or broader community, like those are important aspects to really um, address, you know, what is needed in in the workplace. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I, I guess uh, even in terms of this Google example or these this push for micro credentials, I mean, I, I think oftentimes uh, we talk about the costs of being a deterrent for at attending university. And most of the attention is focused more around uh, the tuition. Um, uh, but, you know, on the learning material side of things, such as textbooks, they've actually increased in price dramatically. Uh, you know, open education resources could solve this problem, but uh, the uptake has been slow, especially here in Alberta, uh, even after the, the last 20 years. Uh, I guess the question to you, uh, Elizabeth, is uh, why do you think that there is uh, resistance to these OER uh, kind of materials? And uh, do you think the OER might compete directly with, uh, you know, university bookstore profits or faculty interests and in working with publishers? Well, let me let me clear up one uh, myth that um, that it competes with university bookstore profits, and and I use the word profits carefully because there virtually are no profits to the university bookstore. It is, um, you know, really uh, run very close to the line, and you can see many universities right now looking at how they can uh, make their bookstores that much more efficient, whether it's outsourcing or what have you. So no, that's certainly not a reason. 
Um, I think if you look at open educational resources, first, you know, what is it? It is, it is that. It is open educational materials that um, you can access, you can use in ever, any way you see fit, you can change, augment, repackage, whatever. Um, so from, from one perspective, uh, you can say, wow, that's really powerful. You know, it's, it gives flexibility. It's, it's inexpensive. You know, once it's out there, people can add on to it. It, it can be used. Um, you know, interestingly, the most widely used OER material by students is Wikipedia. Now, we have to be a little bit careful because there's, there's not a lot of quality. You know, there is some quality control in Wikipedia, but, but it is not all peer-reviewed, uh, shall we say, as, as one would see in, in many textbooks. But I think uh, to answer your question, Chris, um, it does come a lot down to alignment of interests. So students, uh, to your point, they, they want a cost-effective education, you can understand that, inclusive of uh, textbook material that is not gonna break the bank. So they're looking for alternative ways uh, to be able to access that information. If you're first as a university president, uh, I cannot uh, force a, a faculty member to develop uh, OER material. I mean, you, you just don't have that. You need to create incentives uh, for them to do that. Uh, first, it does cost money. So even though it may be free for the student, there is a cost center. And so institutions, including the University of Calgary, have had grants over a number of years to encourage faculty to actually develop these materials because there is an upfront cost to do it. So it's not free. It's, you've just shifted um, sort of where, where the costs are born. So that, that has to, there has to be sufficient investment uh, and incentive. So um, what would incent uh, a professor to actually do this? You know, you have to ask that question too. Um, you know, they've got X number of hours in the day you know, they may be very comfortable with a book that exists, you know, for, you know, whatever class they're teaching and for them to say, no, I'm not going to use that. I'm going to invest my own time and energy to develop this material. Um, you know, they're going to be concerned with things like, well, am I going to, I'm losing the rights to that material. You know, what, what about IP? What about if I invest my time and energy to do that? I'm not having time and energy to do other things, my research, you know, my other teaching, you know, whatever. So I think what you really have at the end of the day right now is, is a misalignment of interests that has to get bridged to really see this scale. I think you see some examples, and even at the University of Calgary, there is some OER material but it's pretty uh, sparse. If that is going to be accelerated, I think both the institution and students uh, or student bodies like student unions, they, they have to come together and say, how do we collectively create uh, the appropriate rewards and incentives to scale, to have this done at scale? Um, that and, and then done in a way that we're going to really make sure that we have sufficient quality uh, of the materials and, and then use of the materials in the classroom. And I think right now that is not, um, we don't have that alignment. 
Um, so to me, that's where that's where we need to go as as a society and as an academic community uh, to see students benefit at the end of the day with that type of material. One of the things, Elizabeth, that we've talked about on this podcast, um, in fact, we, we interviewed one of my colleagues from Mount U Royal University, uh, Tony Chaston, was kind of the rise of virtual and augmented reality and its role in higher education. It's kind of an out there question, but from your experience, do you see a future for those? And that could be online learning, that could be on-campus experiences. Um, I know some people who are trying to develop courses that can be all experienced with a VR headset, almost it would be perfect for the time we live in now. Do you see that as an up and comer or do you think that's a, a future? Or do you think that's, and, and I guess a, a follow-up would be, do you think that's farther out perhaps than we think? It's a great question and and you know i i don't want to um sort of sound that i'm, I'm sort of living in the past to say oh no it's going to come I, I mean absolutely vr and ar have a place in in education i mean it just makes sense um it's an emergent experience um it's a use of innovative use of technology that's you know complementary i think to other technologies uh, that we have in post-secondary education um, so yes, I think it has its place. Um, again, the question is how widespread it will be. You're right, over the past year uh, would have been a great time to be uh, using VR and AR technology, uh, you know, given that we're in an online environment. You know, I think what we will see, you know, we're, we're in an interesting world and I think people now, given what we've gone through for the last year are more open-minded to technology and the integration of technology into learning so it is it is the right time i think to explore that um so yes i can see it uh gaining more traction i mean it could be used for things like you know replacement or augmentation of field trips you know you used to have students traveling all over the world visiting places well if you could do that in a vr environment um wouldn't that be fabulous or maybe do it before you go on a field trip to sort of uh, help with your, um, you know, cultural immersion into a place before you go. So yes, I think there's lots of ways or, or even for laboratory work, um, you know, again, one of the challenges over the past year is in many science and uh, engineering medical courses, it's not just classroom learning, you've got hands on lab learning. Well, you know, if you can't come to campus, if you can't, or if you're doing something online, how could you use VR to recreate that laboratory experience that is so important for many of our academic credentials. So this is about, you know, people being creative. Um, you know, the technology does cost money. So universities, uh, if anything, are, are being stretched on their financial resources. So they have to make decisions of where to make investments for the best bang for the buck for learning. So, um, you know, that has to be factored in as well. I look at, uh, just as an example, at the University of Calgary, we have the Taylor Institute for Teaching and Learning. Um, that was uh, set up through a major philanthropic gift by Don and Ruth Taylor, exactly to develop innovative methods, um, pedagogy approaches to teaching and learning. And it's, it's about doing it in a way that is, it's not just, well, that's a cool thing to do, how is it actually impacting student learning? Because 
you want to um, really understand um, the impact of, of the learning experience. So they call that the scholarship of teaching and learning. And, and so those types of technologies to me are interesting. I think they play a role, but I would look to those who really uh, do scholarship in this area to tell us if it is an effective way uh, for students to learn and to um, experience beyond other technologies that may be available. I love uh, the answer you gave. As someone before working as a faculty member, as a librarian, I worked in education technology and there's certainly a lot of money that's thrown at. Flashy new things get a lot of attention, but like you said, uh, it has to scale, it has to be effective. Uh, Nancy Chick is a is a good colleague of mine, uh, worked together with ISOTL. So I certainly, yeah, 100% agree that measuring, uh, what's the famous book, measuring what matters, seeing where that impact actually is, that's a, that's a great point. Absolutely. And it's um, something that's something I think is not uh, accounted for enough. And as you as you indicate, there's a whole community of scholars. That's what they do. That's what they care about. And that's the role of um, things like the Taylor Institute for Teaching and Learning. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've I've actually had the opportunity to teach in the the Taylor Institute for Teaching and Learning, and um, I mean, I I think it's a a wonderful investment that we've made, uh, especially given um, we're almost kind of disrupting ourselves before we get disrupted uh, by just trying uh, uh, new methodologies and uh, teaching innovation. Um, Maybe just getting into the next part, uh, Elizabeth, what, what other technologies do you see as being uh, essential for universities uh, remaining relevant? And where do you think that we might need to invest? Well, I think if we, you know, look at technologies, I mean, some of it's very basic, you know, when I was president, you know, the biggest complaint is we need better Wi-Fi on campus. Uh, you know, that, that that seems so yesterday, but but it is so true. You know, just having um, secure and uh, prevalent internet access, not having um, your IT system go down. I mean, those, those are kind of table stakes, but they're pretty important. Um, but layering on top of that, um, you know, I'm a big believer in experiential learning. And, you know, and again, I come from engineering and one of the things they are focused on in the engineering school, and it's it's sort of, um, you know, developed over time, is, is really augmenting, again, the, the, the learning in the classroom. And when I say learning in the classroom, maybe online learning, it may be physically in a classroom, with the hands-on, I think, you know students really learn well when they when they are immersed when they are you know touching something when they're when they're really putting their theoretical knowledge to work and seeing how it fits into a construct and and how it impacts the world around us so the use of technologies to be able to bring the knowledge from the classroom into the the workplace, to me, that is um, value add to the student and their learning and for them uh, when they leave the institution. You know, one of the big trends, and you saw it in the release from the Alberta government's uh, 2030 post-secondary plan, um, which, is, which is not unique to here, but, but certainly front and center uh, in our backyard, 
is the concept of work integrated learning. It's, it's the recognition that not everything is going to be learned in the classroom. And we need to partner. We need to partner, you know, whether it's on a technology level, whether it's with employers to help students, uh, again, translate their knowledge into a more practical uh, environment through co-ops and internships and practicums. So there's a role of, for technology in that, but it, it's beyond technology. It's, it's really looking that we collectively, not just within the walls of our institution, but as a community need to invest in our students learning. And we all own a piece of that. Now, to look at specific technologies, you know, sure, we can talk about blockchain, we can talk about cyber, we can talk about quantum, all of AI, all of these things are important. I think it's not realistic at this point in time that, you know, every graduate of the university is going to be exposed to or an expert in blockchain. Uh, some will have no idea and no interest, and that's okay too. But I think where we need to focus in our education, and, and I certainly see it happening here in Calgary, is to make sure students are prepared to, to learn and to take ownership of, of you know, their, their futures uh, and, and being able to contribute. So at the University of Calgary, we, we call that entrepreneurial thinking. And it doesn't mean every student's going to graduate and um, be an entrepreneur, start a company, but we do expect students will be entrepreneurial in their thinking. They will be proactive. They will be accountable. They will be staying current. Um, they will be investing in their education and their futures. That was endorsed in, in the last institutional strategy. And you know you see it through the Hunter Hub for uh, Entrepreneurial Thinking on campus, which is fabulous. Um, but, but that's where we need to go because some technologies will come and go. Um, yes, you need exposure. You need to understand, again, from a digital literacy point of view. Uh, but to me, it comes down to your personal attributes, being open, uh, being curious, and, and being entrepreneurial in your thinking. And if you can do those, whether it's blockchain, AI, quantum, you'll be able to digest, filter, you know, understand at some level uh, what technologies can do for us as humans. Uh, and that to me is the important part and what we expect uh, of our students and our graduates. You know, that's a great point that you make. Um, I mean, uh, I actually just finished teaching a course uh, at the ma uh, for the Master of Management program. Um, it was actually called the Technologies of Innovation, where basically my point is that technology is a tool just like anything else. And it's up to you to go and apply that tool to any type of situation. And I, I think even uh, from what I've seen just on campus, um, I mean, I look at like, for example, the, the Schulich School of Engineering, we have our maker multiplex which is actually one of the largest maker spaces in all of north america uh, but i mean there's uh, even earlier elizabeth you mentioned uh, about music but there is actually a music lab within the makerspace there and so uh, it's about creating those collisions and so on but um, actually uh, one thing uh, maybe um, uh, that you brought up about the entrepreneurial thinking because uh, that was kind of uh, really uh, in a lot of ways your legacy that you've left with uh, the ufc even uh, to make um, uh, the UFC be the most entrepreneurial university in Canada. And so uh, maybe if you want to just explain kind of um, your thought process and what 
what drove you to go and take that approach? Well, you know, and, and it's and certainly not, I'm not taking personal credit. It, it's really a community because the first thing you learn as a university president is you have very little power. So when an institution uh, comes out with their strategy, there's been many, many ideas for many people, many, many hands involved. And that's a good thing because you want collective ownership. But, but I think, Chris, you, you hit on a really important point. And uh, you know, you guys live here. Uh, Calgary is an entrepreneurial community. Uh, you've seen it. Uh, it's in our DNA. You've seen it in the emergence of the energy sector. Um, you are seeing it in the transition and diversification of our city into more tech companies being developed. And, you know, what has happened, particularly, you know, with the downturn in the energy sector, you're seeing it certainly with the pandemic. Um, you know, I speak passionately about uh, what the pandemic has shown us, uh, you know, through great recession is the importance of people and talent and our post-secondary institutions that will help lead us into a more sustainable economy and society. But, you know, I think the, the old days of, you know, you get your university degree and you go for work for big company X and life is good. That's not the model for the future. That is not sort of a realistic pathway for most graduates of most universities, let alone here in the University of Calgary. And so uh, building that entrepreneurial thinking capacity, we felt was very important for our students, not all again expecting they're going to start a company, but being prepared uh, to be resilient in the face of a society and economy that is changing quickly that is more short-term focused that is again having new technologies introduced at a very fast rate um, we need to prepare students for that world which is very different than the world i even uh, experienced upon graduation so that concept of entrepreneurial thinking which is really um, about looking at ways to to innovate to be creative across disciplines to solve problems, learning from experience or failure. That's not a bad thing. Um, we need to integrate that into our curriculum and into the mindset of our students so that they are prepared for their futures. Not, not for my future when I graduated, but for their futures. And you know, it was a very interesting process getting to the inclusion of entrepreneurial thinking into the strategy because you know, if you go to the engineering school, they kind of get it right away. Uh, if you go into the business school, yeah, yeah, we get that. Perhaps if you go into the arts faculty, not so quickly, but I think the way entrepreneurial thinking was defined as being inclusive um, and, and really uh, it, it's not again an either or, it's saying, yes, you can be a great historian doesn't mean you shouldn't have an entrepreneurial thinking mind. Um, you, you, it's one does not replace the other. Um, people came around and got very excited about it, which, you know, when the university is excited about something and there's a collective alignment around the importance of something like entrepreneurial thinking, it makes the president's job. And in my case, when I was in the role, that much easier when I go to the community and talk to people like Doug and Diane Hunter and their son Derek and say, look, all across our campus, our students are demanding this for their futures. Uh, we want to invest and scale up 
our entrepreneurial thinking capacity on campus, they're saying, we want to be part of that. We want to invest, which is why they are investing $40 million in that initiative. So it's, it's about alignment. Uh, it's about making sure students are getting what they need for their futures. And if we do that, the community will be there to support us. You know, on a side note, um, Elizabeth, you mentioned about uh, earlier that you're now spending a lot of your time uh, just uh, investing in companies and, and so on. Um, and I, I think you're highly involved in the Creative Destruction Lab as well. Um, what type of technology are you really excited about in, uh, in the future? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit technology agnostic. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't have an investment thesis that is so focused that I'm only looking at one or two technologies. I do tend to invest in sort of pre-seed or seed stage companies. And, you know, when you're evaluating uh, whether or not to invest at that level, you're really, you're looking at the management team. Uh, you're looking at sort of, you know, how passionate they are, how hungry they are. Um, certainly you're looking at the technology and the market. You don't have a lot of data points to go on. So, um, you know, I'm not sort of fixated on a technology. It's really about people. And I would say within that, Chris, one of the sort of threads that has gone through my life uh, and being a woman in uh, engineering has been the support of, of women in STEM. And, and, you know, my early days, I'd go to classrooms and encourage young women to think about, you know, studying engineering. And then, you know, I would speak to students uh, in engineering and science programs. Um, anyway, I, I don't do that so much anymore. I, I said, okay, where can I make a difference now? And so where that's evolved to is investing in female founded companies. So, you know, it's not so much the technology, it's the people, but where I get excited particularly is uh, women who are passionate. Sometimes it's a technology, everything's got a bit of a technology bent, but you know, one of the companies I invested in is called Sheertex. And you guys probably don't know what it is, but for women, it, it solves one of our, you know, one of those big problems that's pantyhose that run and, and are ruined. And they, they've made sort of indestructible pantyhose while using you know, a special polymer. Well, that's exciting for me and a great founder, Catherine Holmuth. And you know, how can you not invest? So to answer your question, Chris, uh, a little bit technology and agnostic, it's about the people, but I also within that um, have a particular passion for supporting female entrepreneurs. Well, that is a fascinating company that you described. And I, I really appreciate um, you talking about your experience in, in the investment world. I think that's something that perhaps uh, in higher education, a lot of people don't think of, especially leaving from a higher education institution into the investment world. This is probably, Chris, a good transition to our, our rapid fire uh, questions section that sounds a lot scarier than it really is. So, I, I are, are you ready, Elizabeth, for these these lighthearted questions? So ready. That's great. I'm warmed up now. I'm ready. The, the people who who have that attitude uh, give much better answers. That's our uh, small <laughs> sample size. So, the first one is uh, coffee or tea. Coffee. Mac or PC. Okay. Well, this has been a, it's it's Mac now, 
it was PC, but the, when I stepped down as president, I'm all in, all Mac. My iPad, my iPhone, my iMac, and I love it. <laughs> Given uh, that it is May the 4th, we, this may actually upset some diehard people that are listening, but uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? I have to say Star Trek. <sighs> that may date me a little bit. I like Star Trek too. I like both, but uh, well, we may have to edit that out now. We may get hate mail. This is Star Wars Day. Uh, Google Docs or Microsoft Word? I, I'm probably dating myself. I'm a Microsoft Word person. Researcher you most admire? Wow, researcher I most admire. Or today, most admire today. That changes. Well, researcher, I, I mean, I think as a... A female, uh, someone who's been in science and engineering, you know, growing up, who inspired me was Marie Curie, you know, uh, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, historical, but when you look at what she did, um, absolutely fascinating. And for a young girl that grew up loving science and math, yeah, she was definitely somebody I looked up to. Favorite band? Oh boy. Can I say sort of favorite singer? Like, does it have to be a band? Singer's good. So I, I go walking and running, and you know, who I'm listening to now that just, you know, gets me going is, uh, I have to say, Tina Turner. Oh, that's excellent. That's a great answer. Um, uh, now I'm going to give Chris full credit for these next two questions. So, since you're no longer president, we felt that maybe you could you could answer these. But uh, president of the University of Calgary, uh, so Haskane or Shulk? And for those who don't know, that's the Faculty of Business and and then Engineering at U of C. Oh boy, I spend a lot of time in <laughs> Haskane, and of course Shulk is my home faculty. So I I I'm going to take a pass on that one, but I will tell you a story, Eric. <laughs> Um, you know, I finished being Dean of Engineering. I went right to the president of the university. And within two months, I had an engineering student contact me and wanting to visit me. And I, I said, sure. So it comes to my office. We're having a chat. And they say, you know, Dr. Cannon, you're off to a really good start uh, as the university president. But there's one thing we really don't like. And I said, oh, what's that? Why have you not shut down the business school yet? <laughs> so, that's a rivalry you know, then oh a little bit of a rivalry between engineering and business for sure oh man all these things that you learn about ufc i didn't attend ufc i was a u of a ubc person so i'm learning new things every day um faculty of arts or faculty of science boy again <laughs> uh, you, those are tough questions um you know love them both because in, in many universities it's the faculty of arts and science just so you know that so this is true this is true there's in some cases there is a fine line between what is arts and what is science each have their role uh each play an important role within the institution uh because regardless of your degree you're probably taking a, a course or courses in both of those faculties so they're pretty important no that that's an excellent answer i think even uft has arts and sciences and they they're, they're able to they management 
Okay, so this is our last uh, rapid fire question. Maybe a little bit longer of an answer than some of our others, um, but advice to your 20 year old younger self. Advice to my 20 year old younger self. Um, you know, when I was 20, just to put this in a framework, uh, it was exactly when I was 20 that I came to Calgary. So I grew up in Eastern Canada in Prince Edward Island. I have a degree uh, from university in Nova Scotia. And I literally drove my car across the country uh, when I was 20 years old with all the stuff in my hatchback, including plants. I don't know why. Was it a Volkswagen? It, no, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a Dodge Omni. Oh, and I had a few house plants in it, which I'm not sure why I thought I needed to bring with me, but I did. Um, and, you know, it was fascinating uh, to answer your question because here I was driving into, you know, coming from a small town, driving to Calgary, which to me was just big city living. And, you know, it was intimidating. You know, it was it was a bigger place. It was a bigger I came from a small university to the University of Calgary, which you know, again, was large compared to anything I'd ever seen, very intimidated. And, you know, sometimes a sense, you know, do I belong? You know, will I, will I cope? Will I succeed? And, you know, if I look back, you know, what I'd like to tell myself is it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. You're going to love this place. It's going to be your home. You're going to be successful in your family, your life and your career. Relax. Well, that's that's an excellent answer. I I love the positive message behind that. Um, Elizabeth, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. This has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris and Eric. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. And I'm Chris Hall the audio producer for EdTech Examined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A.